Welcome back to the View from the Bridge podcast, the Football to London Chelsea podcast. Hope you are doing well. The last few weeks we've been reflecting on Chelsea's season. We're going to look towards the future now um, with Mauricio Pochettino becoming the new Chelsea head coach. And I'm very glad to say I've been joined by one of the most well-known and followed uh, Spurs journalists for Football.London, Alistair Gold, to reflect on Pochettino, give us an inside look and maybe some negativity uh, to go through as well. How are you doing, Alistair? Thank you so much for joining us. Good. I'm good. Thank you very much for that very kind intro. It was definitely not deserved. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's good to talk about uh, another club that hasn't had a particularly great season as well. Having spoken about Spurs so much this year, it's actually nice to talk about another club for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I sometimes think covering Chelsea is mad, but then sort of seeing what you've had to cover and seeing what Spurs, just this season, but particularly in recent years, it, it's mental, isn't it? it? It seems to be both clubs, although there are, of course, massive rivals, there's there's massive differences culturally between both clubs. There There is this chaos that runs through both of them in some ways. Absolutely. Honestly, this has been... I always thought we'd had some crazy seasons before, but this one, I think they absolutely top themselves uh, to have three different managers. To actually sack your interim manager as well is just mind-blowing after a couple of games. Um, one of the worst matches of football I've ever seen Spurs play at St. James's Park against Newcastle, you know, being like 5 6 nil down within about 20 minutes. It was just... It's a season like no other. And a bit like Chelsea now, it's it's very much this hope. It's the hope that kills you. But now you look forward to the future and Spurs have got a new manager as well. And hopefully have something the fans can cling on to. Mm. Well, of course, this week we now know who the new Spurs head coach would be. I mean, are you stunned that there wasn't more done to try and lure Mauricio Pochettino back? Because I, I find that quite staggering. Uh, given his availability for quite a while now. Yeah, it's a strange one. Honestly, never dropped him a call. They didn't even try to get him back. It's such a very strange scenario because they did try a couple of years back um, before they ended up with with Nuno Espirito Santo, who we won't talk about too much. Um, and they, yeah, that time there were kind of some conversations happened about the possibility of him coming from PSG at that point. It proved to be a kind of a bit of a non-starter for some unknown reason. This this year, they just didn't want to go back. They didn't want to go backwards in their mind, um, and there wasn't a kind of a unanimous feel on the uh, within the club to go back for Poch. And yeah, it, for those of us who obviously were there throughout his his reign, it was it's a very strange decision. But I guess we'll find out this season whether it was the right one or not. Mm. Gauging Spurs fans' opinions. What is the reaction to Poch going to Chelsea? Is it kind of, are people turned on him? Are they more angry at the club? What What's kind of your kind of gauge of that? It's somewhere in the middle. I think had we not been in a period where so many Spurs fans are so frustrated with the chairman, Daniel Levy, and the way the club's been run, I think there would have been a lot more maybe... I don't want to go as far as anger, but disappointment that of all the clubs Poch could have picked, he picked Chelsea. Uh, because obviously in the past, I, I remember him even saying that he actually considered Chelsea bigger rivals to Spurs and Arsenal. So to end up being their manager, I think, yeah, there, there's a few fans that either way are very unhappy about that. Um, there's a lot of fans that have got a lot of love for him and that's absolutely understandable what he did at Spurs. But I just think probably Daniel Levy's taking the brunt of it right now and it's more 
Why didn't you call him? Why did you let him go there? He's a man that, you know, he was he was out of work and, and he needed a job. And this is a big job. And it's um, if you take the emotional side out of it, then it makes absolute sense. But, yeah, I think I don't want to say he's got away with it a little bit, Poch, but he's definitely, I think, benefited from the fact that Spurs are such a mess that he's getting a little bit less flack than he probably would have. Mm. We'll just gauge a new reaction from Chelsea fans because I, I was one who really wanted to see Pochettino come in for quite a while now, not just after Graham Bottle was sacked. But it, 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 I think it took Chelsea fans a little bit of time too to kind of warm to the idea of Pochettino becoming the head coach uh, because there are some Chelsea fans who do view Spurs as the biggest rival. Um, I'm not one of them, but I, I know that th- that rivalry means so much and also the concern of what went wrong at Spurs or... Of course, no trophies at Spurs comparative to what you, you get at Chelsea. I, I do want to start with Pochettino. We can start, I think it's, it's better to start with the bad stuff first, get that out of the way, the concerns, yep. the, the negatives. The ending of his time there in, well, I guess we can track it back maybe even before the Champions League final, but covering that, covering that and the eventual falling out, it was, it was quite staggering how quickly, at least from the outside, it seemed to turn sour. Yeah, um, yeah, it was a really strange time towards the end because it started to unravel a little bit in the season before he went. Um, they really started to struggle on the road. They barely won an away game. I think the last or one of one of the few away wins came at Fulham in something like January, and they kind of limped over the line a little bit into the top four. But obviously, everything was a bit papered over by the Champions League run. <clears throat> Excuse me to the uh, to the final, but even on that road. He was, you could see the frustrations. You could see that we had a press conference for the semi-final. I think it was the first leg against Ajax just beforehand. And he he was asked a kind of a, an innocuous question about something. And he just replied with this slightly terse answer that he then couldn't go back on, which was saying, oh, yeah, maybe if I win the Champions League, I'll, I'll leave because there's nothing else I can do here. And I was a bit like, where's that come from? That was like really strange and out of the blue. And then unfortunately for him, he then had to double down on it. Otherwise, it just seemed like a I'm angry kind of pithy comment. And um, yeah, and that kind of just things from there. Some fans started to get annoyed about the, the fact that he was hinting that he would leave. Mm. Then obviously you had the uh, dramatics uh, that happened in um, Amsterdam. Then the final, which was such a damp squib. It was such a letdown for everyone. Even Liverpool didn't play particularly well. It was just a really awful advert for English football all round. And then in that night, you just felt something something broke almost between not only Poch, but I think a lot of his players. There was a feeling of that was our pinnacle and we didn't take the chance. Um, and from then on, you could just feel relations started to sour. Everyone that kind of felt stale within that squad, you could sense they wanted to get out of it. Um, he was getting annoyed at the club decisions. I remember we had a pre-season tour to, it was Singapore and Shanghai, and the press conferences, there was barely any point in doing them. He was so fed up and frustrated that I think they'd only signed one player at that point, it was Tongi Ondembele. Um, and he was wanting a new striker, he hadn't got one, and he was getting all angry about questions about strikers. And you could just feel that this, this not disconnect's probably too far a word, but just a, a growing frustration. He wasn't the same guy. Behind the scenes, training was starting to get a little bit. This is always the bog standard thing with any manager. When, when, you've, when the things are going great, hard training is a brilliant thing. You can see the rewards, you understand it. 
when things aren't going well, everyone moans about training. It's like, why are we doing this? We're not even getting a result. And the football started to kind of reflect that on the pitch as well. And yeah, it just unfortunately ended up in this almost an inevitable conclusion, especially as soon as Daniel Levy saw Jose Mourinho sitting there on the sidelines waiting to come on. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was sad really, because obviously he'd done so many great things to then see it start to kind of dissolve in that way. It was really sad to see. Mm. Is it one of those things where, you know, seeing and reading uh, Gillian Balaguer's book, uh, which I think is an incredible read in terms of just an insight into the mind of Pochettino, uh, particularly during the 16-17 season. He is an emotional figure. He is someone that wants to connect with people. Is his greatest strength also his greatest weakness in, in the sense that that relentless sort of approach drains people quicker than maybe others would? Yeah, yeah, that's one shout, definitely. Um, I do think, like you say, the emotional side is a big thing for him. He needs to feel uh, loved and wanted and respected, and, and he expects the same kind of of his players. It's it's like a two-way street, and he expects the same of, of the owners as well. And ironically, he and Daniel Levy had the closest relationship Daniel Levy's ever had with any Spurs manager. But yet, it ended the way it did in exactly the same way. I mean, the fact that, Pochettino lasted five and a half years. It's like way over the average for a Spurs um, Spurs manager. It's just ridiculous. They, the average is about 18 months, I think, for a Spurs manager. So, yeah, I, I think there's an element of that. I do think there's almost, it's a bit of a cliche, but it kind of burned so brightly in a way, burned himself out in the end. Um, and the players weren't buying into it anymore because... It's a difficult one because I really don't want to put it all on Poch. I think to say that the end of Poch time was all Poch's fault is is not fair, really. Because he also had these really two horrendous transfer windows in that season when they reached the Champions League final. It was the summer before and the uh, January one where they bought nobody. And it was a very odd time. He was confused. No one really understood why they weren't freshening up and strengthening this side. And ultimately, I think that was one of the biggest... Uh, reasons for that era of Spurs falling apart was that they just didn't refresh until it was too late. And by the time they refreshed and they brought in a few people like um, Tongi Ondembele, Le Celso, both the players that Poch really wanted, Sessegnon, uh, Jack Clark, unfortunately, didn't really do anything that summer, obviously, or, or after. Although he's having a bit of a career renaissance, to be fair to him. Um, yeah, from that point on, you kind of felt, well, this is too late. And for Poch, it almost felt too late and yeah, within what was it, three months of the season, he was gone. I think it does reflect maybe better on Pochettino what's happened at Spurs since. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the the years since haven't exactly vindicated that choice to to let him go. Um I guess one other concern that has been brought up, and I think it's a very valid one with the way Chelsea season has gone, the new ownership, the list of sporting directors we've appointed. Um, that relationship with sporting directors has been one of concern at its previous clubs. I mean, what? Do, I guess, firstly, your experience with that, but then also, what do you make of kind of Chelsea? Because it's not just one person he's dealing with. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because this was always my concern with Poch was when he was going to Paris Saint-Germain and how different a club it was to the ones he'd been at before. You know, this is a guy that's been used to Espanyol, Southampton, Spurs. He's, he's been used to places where he can build a very tight family-like unit. Um, everything is about that core, that family, and everyone outside is kind of... It, it doesn't mean anything. 
And as soon as he went to PSG, I was like, oh, that's like a huge kind of beast of a club almost with so many different people having input and into everything. And and so it proved to be. I, I do think he struggled with that aspect of it. Um, ultimately, the key thing for Poch and why it did work with some of the sporting director types, they had directors of football at Spurs, was was whether he could strike up a friendship with them. So he had Paul Mitchell, who he knew from his MK Dons. Uh, sorry, he knew from previously with he uh, dealt with him at MK Dons and stuff. I think maybe Southampton. I'm trying to remember now. But Paul Mitchell was definitely one that was a friend. Steve Hitchin, who started off as a chief scout and ended up kind of getting promoted up the levels to being a kind of a director of football, they were close friends as well. So as long as he had someone <clears throat> that was a close friend of his that he felt was his ally, I guess, with the board. That's the key thing. But then, yeah, he goes to PSG and it was Leonardo and that was always believed to be quite strained, that relationship and never really quite worked. Yeah, I think that's... It's pretty much down to the word is interference. As if Poch is allowed to do what he does, build what he can build, and then the people around him are helping him do that, then you'll be absolutely fine. But if there's everyone having their own opinion and saying what they want and trying to influence matters, that's when you'll have issues. Hmm. Um, it's a difficult one because obviously I, I don't know Chelsea inside out uh, like I do Spurs, but you would imagine Chelsea at this point now where they've bought a lot of players. They've done a lot of things maybe they felt they should do rather than what the manager particularly wanted them to do. You would have thought that now is the chapter to actually... You've gone, you've gone all out to get Poch. You know, you've done the reverse of the usual. It's not a Chelsea manager going to Spurs. It's a former Spurs manager going to Chelsea. You've gone through all of that. Some, like you say, some fans not being happy with that. Surely you've just got to back him now and say, OK, you draw out your vision for exactly what you want. And Poch likes to work with quite small squads as well. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that works. But just essentially give him what he wants. And he's now got trophies to his name. I know people dismiss them because they're in the French League, but ultimately he, he can win. He knows how to win trophies. He's got over the line. Just let him do what he can do because a happy Pochettino is a fantastic manager. I guess there is also a similarity that is, and a parallel that's been drawn when he arrived at Spurs in 2014. Of course, we are talking about, again, different clubs and th there are, of course, different variables there in terms of expectation level. But when he arrived in 2014, Spurs had a bloated squad. They just had an interim manager. It hadn't really worked out that well in Tim Sherwood. Um, what was the key things he did that kind of, because I know it wasn't an overnight thing, but to, to sort of change the mood from one of maybe a despondent kind of fan base into one that was so connected with him. Yeah, it took about three months. It was around, ironically, Novemberish, which was when he, I think he left Spurs. But it was around November. I think it was a game against Aston Villa where they kind of, he used some of the younger players and they scraped through it. I think it was a deflected free kick from Harry Kane right near the end. And I think he just decided in that moment, do you know what? We do it my way. I think he tried to fit in with a bigger club and he tried to adapt. And I think he just realised in that moment, no, I need to go back to my principles, use younger players, uh, play in a certain way. And from that point on, he kind of systematically um, removed this clique of players in the middle, uh, which the likes of. And it's not to say that they were kind of uh, disruptive in any way. He just felt he needed to have more control of the dressing room. So you had likes of Adebayor, Eunice Kabul at the time. Even Aaron Lennon had been there for a long time. And he started to 
slowly edged these people towards the sidelines. And then you saw the likes of Kane, Ryan Mason, uh, Nabil Bentaleb, the players like that then came to the fore. And suddenly they had this very young, quite hungry squad that were willing to listen to whatever he said. Because, like you said earlier, the personal relationships he builds with players are can be very strong, especially young players. They'll kind of, you know, walk through walls for him or run through walls for him. Um, and, yeah, it was just that moment, I think, in that November when he decided, no, we're going to do it my way and everything from then on. There were still some bumps in the road, but ultimately you could see the improvement and then, bang, straight after that, every season was a top three finish until the uh, Champions League final season. And uh, I think that's the key. I kind of said that in, in the last bit. It's, it's if you just let him do his thing, he's absolutely fine. Um, and it's the moment that he feels he can't do what he wants to do is when the frustration is set in. I, I, when I think about Pochettino Spurs at their best, I do more so think of the 16-17 season because of the, the title race with Chelsea, some of the games that took place that year. Um, I think the FA Cup semi-final really stands out as a very high-quality game between both sides. I mean, when you think back to Pochettino Spurs at its peak, like some of the things that really stand out to you as kind of these are those traits that when Poch is, is working and is allowed to do what he, he wants to do, that you would say, yeah, th these are those things that potentially could be replicated at Chelsea. Yeah, I think it, it's that tight-knit nature. I think that's the key thing. If if he can build a family, as it were, to use the kind of the word that he used to always like to use, within Chelsea, if he can replicate that, and that's going to be a massive task because of the sheer size of the, the club and the squad. Uh, but if he can do that, I mean, obviously, no European football is a help. So immediately you don't need a bigger squad. Um, Spurs are going to find that this season as well, that they don't really need to have 30-something players. Poch normally always kind of prefers a 23-24 man squad. Uh, and then he'll supplement that with with good young players from the academy that kind of fill in if there's any real injury issues. Yeah, if he can replicate that, and and kind of it's funny you, you bring up that semi final, and that to me shows that will always be for me the key indicator of the differences between Spurs and Chelsea. I remember that so vividly, looking down at the bench, and Spurs in that match were able to take bring off the bench. Kyle Walker, who was on his way, I think, out of the club at that point, so he'd been slightly marginalised. George's Kevin and Kudu and Vincent Janssen. Chelsea in that game <laughs> brought in Diego Costa, Eden Hazard and Cesc Fabregas off the bench. And it was just, that was Poch's biggest kind of obstacle uh, at Tottenham, was that they were, good, they were almost like a like a Poundland Chelsea. They were almost like a budget version of it. Try and do things in the same way, but doing kind of compromised efforts when it came to transfers. So, mm. yeah, I'm actually I'm quite fascinated to see um, how his style with actually proper financial backing works at Chelsea because it has the, the potential to be very, very exciting for Chelsea fans um, as long as they pick the right people for him. And, and those early days when he was at... So those early seasons, the, the transfers... Until you got to that stage, were actually quite good, especially the bigger ones, the Toby Alderweireld, the Deli Alleys, uh, even Eric Dyer, who Spurs fans aren't particularly fond of now, but at the time was a terrific purchase and fitted in really well. Um, yeah, if he can get his first summer right, this one, it could be, you know, it could be uh, his, his start could be a lot quicker, I think, than it was at Spurs. 
one of the things that is brought up and we spoke about earlier that that ability to trust in young players to connect with them to then get those young players to run through brick walls I mean it's one of the things that I think stands out with this Chelsea appointment when we look at the investment in younger talent that the new ownership has has made over the past six months at Chelsea the likes of Benoit Badiashil, uh, Wesley Fofana, Enzo Fernandez, Mikhail Mudrik, Noni Manawake you know the list goes on um, is that because I, I, I see that and I think I can see a similarity of a young core that he had at Spurs being replicated there. Um, am I being too simplistic there? Because that's what I think is one of the biggest selling points of Pochettino's appointment. No, absolutely. I think you're spot on. Um, I think the Spurs average age when he, in his first couple of seasons, was something like 23, 24. It was very young. Um, what I would maybe slightly counter that with was obviously that was a different expectations at Spurs. Um, he was obviously aiming to try to get into the top four, whereas obviously with Chelsea, you'd imagine, despite even with last season, the expectations are higher than that. Uh, so he was maybe able to not take more risks, but he was able to take a bit more time and patience, I guess, with these young players. Um, you could argue that, you know, with a lot of these players being brought in for big money by Chelsea, they're already of a higher standard, perhaps, and that could help him. Key thing for Poch with young players is they're more malleable. That he can mould them to exactly what he wants them to be. Um, yeah, it, it, this is the thing. This, this is something. I guess PSG, in a way, was uh, a new experience for him of every match being expected to win. He had to win every single game, and that, despite the fact that it probably wasn't the most successful period of his uh, managerial career in terms of what he wanted to do with the players and the tactics and the coaching obviously was in the silverware perspective, but not so much of what he wanted to do on the pitch. It might still bode well for Chelsea. It might have, he's now experienced both worlds. He's experienced with Spurs, the slow and patient build up with the young players working with them. He's experienced an atmosphere where it was a win. Now you have to do it. And maybe where Chelsea are at right now, it's, it's not quite in the middle. It's probably still more veering towards the PSG end of things. But yeah, with these young players, with the level they're at, he could do good things with them. He really could. I think the expectation level from Chelsea fans is just basic competence from the team next <laughs> season. I, I mean, I know it's Chelsea, right? And I know that there is a, a psychological kind of cultural thing of expectation of winning. But given how yeah. dreadful things were last season, like just seeing a team, it's like the old England thing, like just seeing a group of players who look like they've met before they kick off would be a nice development at Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah, it will. It will. Um, and that's that's what he'll try to do. Like I say, the tight-knit nature of the group. I don't think in my lifetime, maybe the Martin Joel era, I can remember someone creating a, a squad of players that was so close to the fans. I don't think I've ever felt like that. The way he immediately embodied everything that the fans wanted the club to be and he got them playing in a way that they wanted it to be, this kind of fast, aggressive, pressing, passing version of football that everyone had, you know, the whole to dare is to do thing at Spurs that gets mocked sometimes when they really don't dare or do. But under Pochettino, the definitely you could feel they were and, and this is what I think they're trying to replicate with Postacoglu now. It's a very similar style of football, this fast and furious possession of football. Um yeah, he, he's, I'm trying to remember back, the last game at White Hart Lane, um, you saw him on the pitch, absolutely kind of 
tears welling in his eyes. Spurs won. It was an unbeaten season at home. He created this thing where everyone in that stadium, it was full of legends had come, but everyone there, the closest connection they felt with was Pochettino and his team, despite the glittering array of former players that were there. Um, and that's what he can do. When he's, when he's um, given the, the room and space to create what he can create, he can create something very special. Um, again, it, it's about patience, though, and it's about just getting out of his way, in a way, and just uh, letting him do what he does, because he's a very talented guy. He's far more experienced than he was when he was at Spurs. You know, what are we, almost 10 years on from when he joined Spurs? So it'd be interesting to see what the, the new Pochettino is like and uh, coming back into the Premier League. And I think Spurs fans are just dreading that first day that they see him in the opposition dugout. It's going to be a very strange atmosphere. And I don't know how they're going to react, to be honest. Yeah, we've got the fixture release coming up soon. And um, yeah. Chelsea and Spurs have played each other quite early in seasons recently. And I do, yeah. you know, I, I think it's just kind of... Um, just the football gods will make sure it's at Spurs first, I think. And, sure. and it wouldn't surprise me if it's in August. So um, I yeah. guess one final question, um, and it kind of relates to media, it is in terms of press conferences. And, and you know, you did reference some on the more negative side of things um, because obviously it's something that supporters, uh, not just Chelsea fans, but supporters care about it because it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the, the best route of communication to a, a head coach at the top clubs. Um and, and there were major problems in that with Graham Potter. There was a real frustration with the lack of personality he showed when, say, Thomas Tuchel was was one of the, the best communicators I've ever seen at Chelsea. Um, where would you say on that scale Pochettino is? Because we've been speaking about how he creates a connection and bond with those fans. Is it not so much through press conferences and more so with what the team produces? more so what they produce but I wouldn't say he's awful in press conferences I think he can be quite good um, we obviously in the earlier days had the the slight issues with the language barrier um, in that his his English was vastly improved I remember at Southampton he did it through a translator um, and one of the kind of key things when he came to Spurs was that the club said no no we need you to kind of properly talk to people we need you to get your message across so his English did vastly improve I would be stunned if he still doesn't have um, Jesus Perez alongside him as a system manager. He used to always sit next to him in press conferences. You'd have the press com uh, press officer on one side, you'd have Jesus Perez on the other. And whenever there was something, we had this kind of theory that it looked as if he was like didn't understand the question, so he turned to Jesus Perez and asked him. We often think he knew exactly what the question was, but he was just buying himself a little bit more time and maybe they were even chatting about stuff. Um he, he's on the whole pretty good. He gets he he'll often come into a press conference and you can tell he's got some kind of message he wants to get across. Because sometimes you'll ask him a question, it's like your answer bears very little resemblance to what I actually asked you. You clearly have come in with a very set thing you want to get across. Um, he was always very good to us. He sometimes would try to give us something and he'd be worried about his English so he would go on for quite a long time and it would end up end up getting a little bit waffly and repetitive just because he was trying to make sure you had something to write from it I think he was trying to be helpful what I would say is the difference as well between when the cameras were on and when the cameras were off was incredible because when the cameras were on he, he was very good, very professional very um, 
like I say, got his message across. But as soon as those cameras went off and we had this little written section for the, uh, the uh, national newspapers would have uh, like a 10.30 embargo, he would lean back in his chair. He'd have his feet up on the desk sometimes. It was such a relaxed version of him. And I've been very fortunate. I obviously go off on the summer tours with the club all the time. And that's when you get a proper sit down with him for an hour or so. And he is the warmest, nicest guy. He is honestly, he, he is someone you can see why people within a club warm to him very quickly. He's a very charismatic guy. And I think I would urge people that if, if you're maybe not as impressed with the actual press conferences, maybe wait to see what comes out in the later bits, in the 10.30 stuff that the newspapers will put online and then uh, and obviously we'll put on our website and then you'll see him the next morning flowing around as well because it's in that when he really relaxes and he probably says the most interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, I won't worry about press conferences. Look, Graham Potter... I think it is as an excellent coach, obviously, see what he did at Brighton. It didn't work out for him at, at Chelsea for a variety of reasons. But it definitely, yes, having seen him up close and personal in press conferences, you can see he's, uh, how do I put this in a, in a kind way, he's he's not someone you can imagine galvanising an entire fan base, I guess is the way to it. But, but Poch can. He can. He definitely can. When he gets his message across, he can say the, all the right things. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, it's the shame about embargoes because I've seen this with several head coaches actually where you read the written side of things and their answers are so much... Tuchel was like this, even though he's very good in press conferences, you'd read some of his embargoed stuff and it was yeah. as detailed, as insightful. And it is just a bit of a shame that unfortunately the way uh, the media kind of works is the video side of it is always going to... Those clips from the press conference go on Sky Sports and that's kind of all people see. Or sometimes I think... The embargoed stuff is there's if there's something more spicy and it's written down on on text, you you can't not seeing that person say that and their sort of their demeanor and their facial expression can sometimes make those quotes seem worse than they actually are. I just I know we're getting into a very media conversation here, but I I think for a communication for a head coach, I think is very important, particularly on social media, and it's a shame sometimes that that message gets lost. Yeah, it's interesting to say that because in the last year or so the written or it's called embargo section of press conferences at spurs they've started to film them and various companies have started putting out the video and that's been quite interesting to see how that's worked because personally us as the written media kind of feel like we're maybe not getting as good stuff out of the managers because they're very aware that the camera's on them because this is the other thing um and again like you said it's just slipping very much into kind of media talk but in a written section without cameras on if, let's say, they said something they didn't really mean it to come out in a certain way, they can either ask personally or they can go through the press officer to ask the journalist to say, oh, he didn't actually mean that. That may have sounded like he was criticising Player X or the chairman or whatever, but actually he used the wrong word. It was a, a, a translation issue or, or whatever, a language problem. Um, and you can get it fixed, which is, means that they can be far more open, they can be far more relaxed in what they're saying. But when you've got the camera on and it's very much whatever you say, bang, that's it. It's getting transmitted to everyone. It definitely creates a whole different vibe. So we're finding out, Spurs, that maybe the embargo sections haven't been as interesting and as analytical as we'd want them to be. Um, I'm not sure what it is at Chelsea, whether they keep the cameras on or not. They they keep them off, basically, after that there's like a 12, 15 minute uh, 
broadcast and in it they've shut them off I've, I've i personally have never been sent or seen an embargo section like you do at other clubs yeah okay well then yeah so you should get good point stuff that first press conference when he has a, a sit down i think a lot of people at spurs are going to be very interested to see what he says as well because you know he's going to have to protect himself and he's going to have to protect his his brand in a way so i'm intrigued to see there'll be definitely questions about the way it ended at spurs um but he also has a reasonably good relationship with Daniel Levy still, uh, despite the fact that he never rang him. Um, so I'm intrigued to see what comes out about Spurs in that. I think we'll all yeah. be paying very close attention. Yeah, I don't think you'll win a lot of money if, if you're betting that the first question is going to be about Spurs because, you know, I think so, someone's failed at their job if that isn't the first one of the first <laughs> questions becoming Chelsea head coach. Uh, thank you so much, Alistair, for joining me. Uh, great conversation. And... Um, I'd be disingenuous if I say best of luck for next season and I'm sure it'd be the same the other way to be honest but uh, just before we go where can people find your your work online? Yeah yeah, obviously football.london all of my Spurs stuff on there uh, with my colleague Rob Guest we, we cover every aspect in and out of the club um, obviously that's, that's not a great deal of help to those who uh, follow Chelsea but uh, I'm sure we'll be doing lots of Pochettino pieces as well as his uh, arrival at Chelsea comes near so um, and obviously look back I, I remember did a a really long interview um, I think it was the first interview you'd ever done with Jesus Perez his assistant it was like a really long feature I sat down with him uh, have a look for that on football.london because that gives you a really good insight not in only into Jesus Perez and the relationship he has with Pochettino but a real hopefully an insight into the way Pochettino works as well which hopefully you'll see at Chelsea. Yeah, definitely. A lot of insight there. And, and as I say, I think there is, it is worthy, especially when you're getting a new head coach. And even though Pochettino, for a lot of Chelsea fans, will be a known name, I still think it is very insightful to kind of get those more personal stories from people who've worked with him and played under him. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week, I'm sure. Scott and Bobby will be back to, to cover all the transfer stuff later in the week. And we will see you again very soon. All the best. <laughs>